2: chimps are they're falling down on the job here in terms of producing it's reliable true. it's been a long
3: standing criticism <laughs> in the academic community that chimpanzees really aren't doing enough <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias with Jane Koston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, We got another non-coronavirus white paper for you.
4: That still manages to not be happy fun times. No, No. we could really
2: come up with more optimistic white papers. It's not uplifting. That's been a big lacking. But, you know, it's uh, it's it's different. But, you know, going to talk about about the virus in our main segment. I really wanted to ask Dara to sort of explain to us what is going on at the border uh, with coronavirus. Um, obviously, the U.S.-Mexico border has not like, in you know, a practical sense, been an important coronavirus hotspot. But all countries around the world have been sort of cracking down on travel, hardening borders and stuff in in response to this. And in Donald Trump's case, uh, this is an aspiration he has long had, is to do a big border crackdown. And so what's what's happening there?
4: Right. So I think it's important to know both kind of his context for what we're about to be talking about and just kind of generally as people... Start to think about you know the kind of long term effects of the coronavirus pandemic. That one of the exceptions to the countries cracking down on travel and being very aggressive in implementing social distancing has been Mexico. Uh, there have been a lot of questions about why Mexico has been slower than a lot of other countries, including much smaller countries with much less international travel in Latin America. In you know, cracking down on international flights in implementing aggressive uh, social distancing policies. The president of Mexico, uh, somewhat similarly to the president of the United States, has been, you know, doing an aggressive public appearance schedule that raises questions
3: about kissing babies, shaking hands, that that sort um, of thing, arguing that religious amulets might help protect against coronavirus. It's been very strange to observe.
4: You know, I point this out for the purpose of saying that we actually may very well be looking at a period of time where the U.S. has taken an aggressive response and and has flattened the curve on coronavirus, but Mexico uh, has not. That's going to be a dynamic I think we'd be dealing with for some time. Now, what relationship that bears to the actions the Trump administration has taken is a big question, both because we have a lot of pre-existing evidence that the Trump administration sees people coming in via Mexico, often from, you know, Central America or even South America or even you know, via Central and South America, but coming from African and Asian countries as an existential threat, regardless of whether there is a global pandemic spreading or not. And so there is something of a boy who cried wolf problem here in their attempts to, for the sake of public health, legitimize a border crackdown. There are also, of course, questions about like the chronology of this, right? We had first heard several weeks ago at this point back when there were barely any coronavirus cases being reported in Mexico or really in Latin America more broadly, that the U.S. was considering doing more to shut down the border with Mexico. And ultimately, the U.S. did make agreements with both Canada and Mexico to limit cross-border travel. Those agreements were, by all appearances, legitimately bilateral, probably because the U.S. at that point had more cases than either Mexico or Canada. So, there is, I think, a tendency among critics of the administration, certainly listener, most listeners of this podcast would probably fall into that uh, category, to assume that the administration is led by ideology at, at best, I guess, and that it's kind of reverse engineering everything from there. That may be true, but it's also the case, like, there is a tricky situation here. But what the U.S. has done in practice is to say, our primary concern is that if people are in holding facilities on the border, in Customs and Border Protection facilities, the kind of places where there were a lot of concerns about crowding a year ago, places that aren't built to be holding people at all for any period of time and that don't have the kind of minimum standards of care that exist in places that are supposed to be detention facilities, the concern is, OK, if, if coronavirus gets in there. We can't control the spread. It's going to be a big problem for migrants. It's going to be a big problem for Customs and Border Protection employees. It's going to kind of spread throughout the region. And so to keep people from being held in Customs and Border Protection facilities, they are instituting a policy where basically everybody gets just sent back. They do not get processed for immigration purposes, even when that processing is just saying, you entered, you weren't supposed to be here, we're deporting you. They're just doing a very quick kind of biocheck and then sending people to Mexico. That is contingent, obviously, on Mexico accepting those people back. It's accepting back not only Mexicans, but uh, Guatemalans, Hondurans, and Salvadorans as well. So That turns out to be an overwhelming majority of the people who are coming in without papers through Mexico. We don't have a ton of details still about how exactly this process works. We know a little bit. More than anything, it appears to be a return to the policy of George W. Bush, in the mid-2000s when there were a lot more people coming across where people weren't formally deported if they just got caught coming in. They were just sent back. That got dismissed by immigration hawks as catch and release and was replaced with the holding people longer so you could formally deport them. But it also does raise substantial questions about the biggest difference between now and the mid-2000s isn't just that there are fewer people coming over, but that more of the people who are coming over are uh, trying. Trying to seek asylum in the United States. And so there are massive due process concerns there.
2: As far as I can tell, this is sort of what Donald Trump has wanted to do all along. I mean, as you say, the, the public health situation in Mexico is legitimately very concerning. And I think any administration would have a heightened concern. I mean, both about the fact of the pandemic and the Mexican government's pretty eccentric attitude toward it. But As far as I can tell from leaks and various things, like this has been Trump's frustration with the border all along that like that it is a zone of law in which there is a processing of people, and there are steps at which they can raise certain kinds of objections. And even if he personally believes that their claims are in bad faith or illegitimate, they have a right to a court hearing. And there are like questions about under what circumstances can you detain people and and things like that, and that he wants the border, he conceptualizes the border as like a rubber band. Right. That you just or of the pulse field. Yeah, absolutely. Back. Yeah. And that and that now the, the public health emergency is somehow illegally bureaucratic. Something has changed and he is now able to actuate what has long been sort of his vision of how this ought to function.
4: So bureaucratically what's happening is the kind of reversion to the mid 2000s the technical turn term, term is that people are are not no longer being deported they are being voluntarily returned legally what they're doing is different they're claiming that because that they are invoking a part of federal law that like a lot of things under this administration uh had been either dormant or like not really conceptualized for this purpose like A lot of people in immigration world were not familiar with this when they first invoked it. It's under Title 42 of the U.S. Code. Immigration stuff is generally under Title 8. This is under a kind of set of laws dealing with public health and what powers the government has in times of public health concern. And it gives the, in practice, the CDC the authority to ban the entry of people or things that might introduce an infectious disease into the U.S. And so legally, the administration has put forth an argument that, A, uh, even if a disease is currently present in the U.S., if it could be introduced into more places or spread further, that counts as an introduction that it can then ban things from. Secondly, that When it says that people can't come from places that have the disease, you can define a person as a place and therefore you can you can ban a type of person from entering. And so therefore, as a result of concern about coronavirus, they can ban the entry of anyone coming in without papers. Which is an interesting legal argument. They're essentially saying that not only is this legally separate from all immigration law, That it basically trumps existing immigration law, that it gives them a totally separate channel through which they can deal with people who are entering the US. And so therefore, the statutory things that are in place to guarantee a certain minimal amount of due process for anyone who expresses a fear of persecution in their home country no longer need to apply because this is not happening under Title 8, it's happening under Title 42. It is not a tested argument. They have not issued any kind of Office of Legal Counsel memo saying, here's why we think this is kosher. As a matter of fact, they weren't really explicitly publicly saying that they think it trumps immigration law. That's the conclusion that's been drawn from, you know, what they've kind of said in private briefings. I guess, got a an internal border patrol memo on how processing was supposed to happen under this that made it pretty clear that they don't consider the you have to do X, Y, and Z if they express fear of persecution standards to be in place because they consider it a totally separate process than the Title Eight process. But It's the sort of thing that, under general circumstances, you would see litigation. You would see arguments being made explicitly. Does this, in fact, trump all existing immigration laws and practices? But because both of the kind of speed with which this was implemented in the secrecy and because of the state of emergency concerns, that conversation isn't happening in public. And whether or not it's going to happen, at all, may be dependent not just on the shape of the coronavirus, you know, arc itself, but also on how long the Trump administration decides to keep this policy in place and whether they push the limits of what would be a kind of emergency timeline.
3: That point that this is not a general situation is so important because you're seeing the response on the Mexican side of the border where Mexican authorities are attempting to clear the border themselves. So they're putting people on buses to go to other Mexican states, perhaps. And so you have a large group of Central American migrants who are being pushed away from the border on both sides. Right. And to be clear, a
4: lot of these people have been waiting for you know, months and months, because even prior to this policy and like it can be a little bit tricky if you haven't been following the developments over the border in the if you've been following them a little bit over the last year and a half. It kind of has seemed for a while like basically nobody can claim asylum in the United States. But what's been happening has been that regulatorily speaking, people entering without papers are not allowed to get asylum, but that doesn't mean they're not allowed to get any humanitarian protection. There are kind of these lesser forms of relief written into the law that the administration can't regulate out of existence. And they've been getting sent back to Mexico kind of temporarily indefinitely while they have court proceedings in the US. That is what is changing now. They're not bothering to get any kind of US court date. There isn't any promise of we will consider some kind of persecution claim for some kind of legal status in the US. But it means that the thousands of other Latin American migrants who have been kind of hanging out on the U.S.-Mexico border coming back in for their court dates occasionally. Those court dates have been pushed back indefinitely, and the Mexican government is making a much more aggressive effort to kind of clear them out.
2: Well, I mean, this is part of a, a larger trend, right, in America where the pandemic is a state of exception. This is something we've we've talked about in the podcast before, but Obviously, there are still laws in America and court proceedings happen on various topics. But there's also like a lot of a lot of weird stuff happens, like slightly head scratching stuff like can the government tell business owners they just have to close with no hearing or anything or like what statutory authority is that being done under? And not to say that there isn't some, but the way it is promulgated is not. Bureaucratic rational in the normal sort of way, right? It's like uh, different leaders, state and city leaders, will just like put out tweets. And press releases that are like, sorry, no more bars and restaurants. And then they close. And then we've had, you know, the, the president just kind of sees the airwaves for a couple hours every evening, evening after evening. And you've had Democrats just putting forward like policy concepts like we should give unemployed, low wage unemployed workers actually more money than they were earning when they were working, which is like a suspension of the, the normal logic of the American welfare state in a profound kind of way. Or for that matter,
4: you know, the calls for governors to postpone primary elections, that kind of thing.
2: Exactly. And and you had, you know, lots of people, I think most Weeds people probably- fairly outraged that Tony Evers was not allowed to change the date of the Wisconsin primary for public health reasons. But like what happened there was first, he tried to call a special session of the legislature to get them to do it, which everybody agrees would have been within their power. Then the Republicans in the legislature refused because they think a low turnout primary will help them. At which point Evers just said he could cancel it On his own recognizance as a public health measure, there was litigation. And this was a rare case in which, I mean, I think because there's clear electoral upside for Republicans in slapping back an emergency measure. But it's the only instance I can think of of any executive official at any level anywhere in the United States being told by courts that something they were doing because of coronavirus was was going too far. Right. It's a big sort of opportunity. And, you know, you see like like Viktor Orban is using this to like entrench an autocratic government in Hungary. Donald Trump's aspirations are much narrower than Viktor Orban's. And like the like this idea that we should hermetically seal off the southern border is like a rare instance of something Trump has pursued fairly doggedly for a period of of years. Uh, But like all kinds of I I don't know what to say. Like, there are exceptional things are happening all across America because the emergency is understood to trump the sort of normal slow grind of adversarial legalism.
4: Yeah, I mean, something that I thought a lot about when I was looking at this Border Patrol memo and talking to, to folks about it is, to a certain extent, weighing this kind of exigency and the need for executive flexibility to respond quickly to emerging circumstances versus the procedural constraints of like guaranteeing certain rights to certain people is basically what, you know, that's like been the fundamental concern facing liberal government for hundreds of years. You know, how, how do you weigh those two things? And there are certainly cases in which The U.S. has assumed for the most part that you're not there are certain rights that you're not allowed to just kind of justify exigent circumstances to strip. Um, But, you know, Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus, even those kind of non-negotiable, constitutionally explicitly guaranteed rights can in practice get a little bit fudged because for one thing, judges are people, too and are going to come into a case with a certain degree more deference if they think that there is something dangerous they're being protected from. And also, frankly, there's just a lot of discretion built into the federal system to allow the executive to determine what is an emergency and what isn't, and therefore when the law applies. Like, there isn't any kind of formal Process that the CDC had to go through in order to decide that this quarantine order could be invoked. There's a lot of assumption that, like, you need to entrust the executive to know when things are going to really go to the heart of the existence of the American people. And that's the context in which a lot of, and it's easy to forget this because there have been so many injunctions, especially in the first two years of the Trump administration against the administration on immigration stuff, but like, in general, the executive branch does get deference on immigration law because a lot of that case law was built in the context of the Cold War, when it was very easy to justify existential threat, you know, even on fairly edge cases, because anyone with ties to communism, you could very easily make the case was like on the side of America's biggest enemy. And between that and the post- 9 11 situation in which the government acted very rapidly to curtail the rights of a lot of Muslim immigrants in the United States. There's a certain, I don't want to say, I don't want to say learned helplessness because that's way, way, way too strong. But even among people who believe that what the government is doing on the border right now is obviously illegal, there's a lot of pessimism that any court Not just like not just that they would get the Supreme Court to uphold it, but there's pessimism that any court would be willing to say that because they don't want to get into a situation where the executive has to go through a months long litigation process in order to act, you know, swiftly when swift action is needed.
3: Right. And I think that this has been the concern for a lot of people about a hypothetical, a pandemic or a disaster in some kind is that you had this idea that you would have that kind of emergency standing of people saying like, yes, this is bad, but we're in the midst of a crisis. You know, the same thing that took place after 9-11. You know, we're still dealing with the impacts of the Patriot Act or warrantless wiretapping. And I think that for a lot of people, specifically libertarians, have been saying essentially that the emergency measures being taken on both the state and Federal level definitely in some cases have the sense of things that like you intuit that people wanted to do anyway, and so I think that specifically on immigration we see that as kind of the to quote Rahm Emanuel not letting a emergency go to waste concept, which I think is has become more of an accusation than something that people are actually saying that they are doing. But I think that that concept seems to come across, and I'm I'm interested to get your thoughts, Jara, on. Or if there's any way to know moving forward what this looks like. Because I think that, especially because... I think it's important to remember that this is a global pandemic, and so as Matt mentioned, Hungary has been you taking you know draconian measures of its own, and one would expect that at a certain point in the next couple of weeks, horrifyingly, as Mexico's situation may start to get worse, especially because you have these weeks and weeks of AMLO denying that this is taking place in a very much you. It kind of reminds me of the reaction coming from. Brazil's leadership of just like Brazilian can jump into sewage and come out and be just fine. So this won't impact us. So as we're on these different staggered timelines around the world of either kind of the first wave of the virus, or the second wave that's starting to hit in Taiwan and elsewhere. You're going to start seeing the responses to our own actions on the border. How will Mexico respond in the coming weeks as this becomes more serious, especially in northern Mexico? How will all of these countries look? And then you have the sense that if every country is doing something similar, then I think for some of the United States, it's kind of a sense of like, oh, this is just how we react to a disaster.
4: Yeah, Um it's it's very difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. I, I mean, realize so asking much of, you
3: that was kind of dumb.
4: Yeah, no, it's it. So here's here's kind of what I'm thinking about. First of all, I think there is. One of the logical conclusions, if you believe that this is something that the administration has wanted to do this whole time and has just found the opportunity to do it, it, it stands to reason that you would believe that it's going to remain in place basically forever unless stopped, that they're not going to actually rescind this quarantine order ever, even if hypothetically it were, you know, we were to like totally eradicate the coronavirus or whatever. I am not saying that. I think that there are are frankly things we just don't know about the internal politics of the CDC right now and whether this is something that public health officials would be comfortable with continuing, et cetera. They did also in the regulation that they put out as an interim final regulation that allows this, you know, that like gives kind of a legal space to this order. They said that in general these things should have end dates and there wasn't an actual end date on the CDC order, so they may have they may feel that they have to like provide one. But I think that that is domestically the question is when is the is there is there something that is going to cause the administration to kind of turn back on its own? And if not, at what point will it seem politically or litigatively, I guess, more prudent to File a legal challenge. And corollary to that, we've seen that uh, judges, even when they think that the administration is doing things that are illegal, they are less likely to try to put those things on hold if they're already in place for a long time. So if this hap- you know, if the litigation happens, but it happens months in the future, will it in fact not have the effect of putting anything on hold? So I think that that's kind of one lane of questions. The other lane of questions is, It's not exactly like the only difference between the catch and release policies of the mid 2000s and formally deporting people was just a matter of paperwork. Like the, the logic there was that it was going to have a stronger deterrent effect in preventing people from just trying to cross into the U.S. again, because even though every... Indication we have is that a higher percentage of people who cross without authorization are getting caught now than were when immigration was much higher. Like, A, we don't have numbers to put to that because you can't know what you don't catch. Also... Customs and Border Protection has kind of steadfastly resisted any effort to estimate what they don't catch as an official metric. So there's been a, a lot of difficulty with kind of grokking just how many people are evading apprehension. And while over the last several years, that's become less of a concern because so many people are just turning themselves in because they're trying to claim asylum, If that's no longer a thing that you can do, it's reasonable to expect that people are going to try to evade. And so what does that look like in a world where it's difficult but not impossible to get through in the back of a truck or in the back of a car or where certain stretches of desert are less guarded? That, I think, is a very open concern.
2: Let's let's take a break. Um, And then I kind of want to delve back into this because it's a it's it's a little bit of a a thorny situation that I, I think people should try to understand.
5: Support for The Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P.
2: Quick review one. So old school, right? The the Bush era immigration problem was people, largely working-age men without their children were trying to so to speak, sneak across the border, like actually not be detected, then get into a community somewhere in California or Arizona or Illinois, what have you, and then go work without papers. And the practice at the time was if the Border Patrol did catch you, they would like drive you back to Mexico and be like, hey, man, get out of here. And. Immigration hawks saw that as a soft policy because all that happened was is you were back in northern Mexico, which is exactly where you were before you tried to sneak across the border. So you could just try again. Right. And since the Border Patrol, obviously not now and especially not then, did not have the capacity to catch everybody who snuck across the border, the mere fact that some people were getting nabbed and sent back to northern Mexico had no super meaningful deterrent impact. It was like it was just still a no brainer. Like if if you wanted to live the life of an undocumented immigrant in the United States of America, the fact that the Border Patrol might catch you wasn't a good reason. Not to try. And so that's why there was this push to a much more bureaucratic process in which you would be officially stamped as a person who had broken the law, who had been deported, who was ineligible for all kinds of things in the future. Right. Was it like you had to suffer negative consequences from having been apprehended and that that was going to discourage people from coming. And, you know,
4: some of those are criminal punishments. That's when we start to see the rise in criminal prosecution of illegal entry and illegal re-entry. Some of them are immigration consequences, like if you are formally deported, you don't get to immigrate to the US legally for a period of years, um, or even, you know, under cer- some cert- circumstances permanently. So whereas if you just get d- voluntarily returned, like, who
2: cares? And detention is unpleasant.
4: Yes, and detention, yes. And, and, and the experience of being detained, and just as importantly, like, logistically speaking, if you're being held for a few days, that's a few days in which you can't then try again.
2: Right. So then the whole story flips in the late Obama administration, because more people are coming and they are deliberately getting caught up in the bureaucratic maw because they want to make asylum claims. And that's why now the hawkish position is to do the thing that the Hawks used to criticize and just round people up and, like, take them back to school. And when we say
4: more people are coming, like...
2: Fewer people are coming.
4: Right. Fewer people are coming than than came prior to the Great Recession. Although, you know, with the exception of, like, the first half of last year where briefly we were seeing pre... We were seeing, like, 07 comparable levels. But... More of them were coming than were coming during the like post-crash Obama years, and as we've seen from this administration, relative rises in numbers start to seem like there is a problem, especially because because these people, many of these people were making asylum claims, they couldn't even be. Deported after a couple of days, they would have to be held for a certain period of time, and other parts of the system were being overloaded as a result. As you may recall, if you you know remember some of our podcasts when this was a big issue about a year ago,
2: right? So, I mean, it's just a kind of interesting mm-hmm.
4: turnaround, right? I mean, it's the- wild to me. I you know I kind of feel I feel very odd, feeling like I'm the only person in the room who remembers the late Bush era, especially because, like, I wasn't even following immigration. I was still in college then. Um, But it is wild that no one has pointed out that this is what used to be called catch and release before catch and release was
2: catch and release. But this is just to say, like, we don't have fixed opinions as to, like, how the border patrolling process should work as a processing thing. The common thread is that there is a sentiment that border patrol should be uh, discouraging people from trying to cross the border. And what processes seem to people to be a good way to accomplish that changes in response to who is coming, our perceptions of why they are coming. But then, of course, like the flow also switches in response to the policy. So, I mean, for the limited circumstances of the United States having a 13 percent unemployment rate and there being a raging global pandemic, this probably doesn't matter that much. But the question is, like, since this pandemic response intersects, like some of what's going on like hotels being empty very much cuts against like how Donald Trump thinks the world should work but what's happening at the border right now aligns with how he thinks the world should work so obviously he is going to try to keep really tough border measures in force as long as It's legally and politically viable to do so because like the emergency is real, but like his desire to do this is like much, much larger than the facts of the pandemic. But like we don't really know what would emerge if you like if you if you adopted catch re adopted catch and release is a long term border security strategy. Uh, like, it's really not clear that that would work. People people criticized it for a right. reason. Right. I mean, there are a couple of factors here.
4: If we're dealing with a pandemic that is married to a Great Recession level, like cleft employment in certain sectors, insofar as the people who want to evade apprehension are people who are looking to come and work under the table who don't necessarily need to get humanitarian protections or legal status to do that, those people might be less likely to come into a weakened economy, you know, if they're not going to find jobs anyway. On the other hand, if the problem with catch and release was primarily a problem of like Mexican immigrants could be swiftly just turned around and come back. And now we're not only doing that for Mexican immigrants, but also for some Central Americans, then yes, that is going to be that kind of revolving door might be a concern. And furthermore, if Mexico really is a particular problem point for this pandemic in the medium term, that's going to be both a drain on the Mexican economy and a very good reason that people might want to leave that country. Of course, on the other other hand, you could see a world where it's less appealing for, say, a Salvadoran to try to travel through Mexico for several weeks just to get to the United States if that's a severe epidemiological risk. In general, the argument made by immigration hawks is that you have to have consequence delivery. People who are entering the U.S., contrary to US law need to have consequences levied on them that will make it clear to people in their networks who are considering migrating that it's not worth it if you take that to its logical conclusion given that as you said Matt like the flows do respond to the policies to a certain extent you're playing whack-a-mole and it's just a question of how efficiently your machine can pivot and how good your capacity is to see everybody coming in so that there isn't a massive, totally unmonitored channel. But it's also true that the harder you make migration, the more likely it is that someone who is migrating is going to be doing so out of desperation. And the concerns of a of people fleeing a kind of you know, in the worst case scenario, essentially a collapsing Mexican state aren't something that a catch and release system is super equipped to deal with.
3: Right. I feel like the pandemic has scrambled so much, so many of these priorities or understandings, because I just kept thinking, would people travel through Mexico even if it was an epidemiological risk? Yes. If where they were coming from was far worse than Mexico and they had the idea of like, okay, if we can make it to the U.S.-Mexico border, it will be safer there. I think that that's the challenge here is that at a certain point, as you've both pointed out, you want to make the risk seem far more certain than the potential reward. But at a certain point, if you're in the midst of a pandemic, there's a certain level at which the reward will always outstrip the potential risk if the reward is not just entering into the United States for economic reasons, but entering into the United States for health reasons. And I think that that's a particular challenge that I don't really see a workaround for. And I don't know if there is a viable one. And it's just it's so challenging having this conversation because I think, you know, we've pointed out that a lot of these border measures are things that Trump would want to do anyway. But I also think that we have no idea about what the potential impact of that will be or would be our existing context for immigration is largely based on a US-centric model for understandable reasons. But when we are in close contact with other countries that are all facing the exact same challenge and doing so in very different ways, how does that shift the calculus? How does the Mexican government react if it is itself in the face of potential economic or societal collapse because of a pandemic that they didn't get In front of enough? How did they react? Are they still busing people away from the border? Are Mexican border police still attempting to move people just away from the border in any means necessary? What does that look like? I have no idea.
2: Well, and I also think, you know, Mexico has a sort of extreme economic. Vulnerability to this sort of pandemic, separate from the question of the adequacy of the government's response. I mean, if the response had been extraordinarily good, that might have helped them, uh, but that's not the case. And, you know, Mexico's a substantial um, oil exporter, but has a sort of ailing oil industry from an investment perspective. And now with global commodity prices in the toilet, both like their ongoing earnings from that oil are going to be minimal and nobody is going to want to invest in improving that that industry. I mean, which it's been a problem for their economy, but like now it's taken up to the to the nth degree. They also do a lot of tourism, which, you know, has always been uh, they've been in a dicey situation with tourism vis-a-vis uh, gang violence for a long, long, long time. Which, um
4: fun fact. The Mexican security situation does continue to deteriorate even under conditions of coronavirus. So. Well,
2: right. Well, and, but there's, there's a feedback loop, right? Because, like, one of the things has been there's a lot of corruption issues. I, I'm, I'm not an expert, but, you know, there's an interplay between like state failure, organized crime, economic dysfunction. And one of the things that keeps like Cancun and, and the city of Quintana Roo going well is that the, economic value of the tourism is high enough that it's worth officials' while to keep those tourist zones safe. There's money to be made in that, just as there's money to be made in cartel work. But so if the economic value of the tourism vanishes simply because nobody, like, wants to go on vacation in the middle of of a huge pandemic, then the the cost-benefit Switches of like where the money is. And then you can, even if the pandemic passes, right, you have entrenched security problems that now can't be overcome in an easy, obvious kind of way. And so we had been seeing a real waning of sort of push factors in Mexican economic migration uh, over the, the past several years. And it seems you know, very realistic that those will come back in a major way, separate from, you know, there's like going to be a public health situation for months or maybe even a year. But what's the economic sort of balance of risk going to look like for Mexicans to say nothing of Central America is like a big open question. But just as like old policies are making a comeback, like the old policy problems you could imagine making comeback as well. Yeah,
4: I mean, we really we already were seeing a relative rise in Mexican migration, though nothing comparable to mid 2000s levels and really, you know, it was it was not even making up for the collapse in Central, Central American migration in the second half of last year. What we were seeing a lot of was Mexican or seeing a little bit more of was Mexican family migration from Michoacan, from other states that have had particularly bad crime problems. So how that's going to be affected by things continuing to go sideways is not super clear, but it is totally plausible that between the kind of changes in demonstrated need and urgency of leaving and the extent to which smuggling networks are going to take advantage of that need by identifying new markets for people to you know, charge money to get into the United States, especially if they're able to charge them more money by saying, well, we're going to be able to get you through safely. It's now riskier because we have to evade apprehension, but we're going to get you through without anybody noticing that you're there. If they can make that promise reliably, which is kind of the $64,000 question, then there's a very strong incentive for them to aggressively market to the most desperate people in the region.
2: And so Democrats have not made any points on this a super high profile part of their response. Uh, But there is a push from from some Democrats to change immigration detention circumstances. Right. I mean, there's a whole nexus of concerns around jails and prisons and immigration detention is part of that with at least like some activist energy and some congressional Democrats pushing for pushing for what? You're right
4: that this is kind of out of a nexus of, um, I think Democrats have been attuned to thinking about how is the coronavirus pandemic going to hurt people who are already vulnerable and how can we as the progressive party raise alarms about that? And jails, prisons, and detention centers are also an epidemiological problem because uh, especially in the case of jail, people are cycling in and out with some frequency. It's impossible to practice effective social distancing in confinement circumstances. People who are employed at these facilities are cycling into and out of the community. And so it's easy for pathogens to get brought in, you know, some of the places where a lot of people are being held are epidemiological hotspots in terms of ice detention. There are a lot of people being held in ice detention in New Jersey County jails. There are a lot of people in federal detention centers in Louisiana, which is really becoming a significant national hotspot. And so the concern isn't just are people sitting ducks because they're facing a pandemic in these constrained circumstances, but also are these going to become petri dishes that are going to keep the life of this infection going by creating kind of a safe zone for the virus? The other reason that this is particularly salient for ICE detention isn't just that like, unlike the overwhelming majority of criminal confinement in the U.S. is state and county-based. And so it's hard for the federal government to like easily move levers on that, but ICE detention is federally run and is largely discretionary. There are rules that say you have to detain people if they have certain criminal convictions, but in general, even though the Trump administration has tried to reduce the amount of discretion through a bunch of avenues that people actually have to release people from detention, in general, it is ICE's decision who is detained and who isn't. And so there are a lot of people who are currently in less than ideal epidemiological conditions who, if they were allowed to leave, could make themselves safer. So you've seen this push to, it was first a push for ICE to stop engaging in aggressive immigration raids and arrests, which they more or less told Congress they would you know, they would scale back for health concerns and now a push for ICE to start exercising its discretion to release either particularly med- medically vulnerable people in detention, like people who are HIV positive or have other underlying health conditions that would make it particularly lethal for them to get the coronavirus or to exercise discretion to just like let a ton of people out so that you don't have a situation in which people are packed within way fewer than four to six feet of each other
3: it's interesting because i um will drop it into the show notes but there are a couple of pieces on this issue and um you the immigrant defenders law center in california has organized a free them all campaign which is focused on this particular issue and um the executive director of the organization makes the point that ice detention is discretionary so they could do this It's so interesting you put this of like everything about ICE detention. And this crosses even outside of the issue of immigration and detention in that setting. We've heard a lot about prisons. Um, I wrote a piece this week on issues facing folks who are living in group homes who might have intellectual or developmental disabilities. I know it's... It seems obvious to say this, but so much of how we organize society is not at all conducive to responding to a pandemic. And we're seeing that in calls to release prisoners or at least low-level offenders and to release people from ICE detention, which is, as they note, a discretionary impetus. But I do think that there's a sense that when I talk to conservatives about this particular issue, this seems to be kind of like, well, you would want to be doing this anyway. Right. See, this is... is a very
4: good converse image of what we were talking about with Trump and the border, right? Like, There's basically no one who was out there explicitly saying, look, usually I think that I should be given a lot of deference if they say that someone is at risk of absconding and therefore needs to be held in detention, then I think they sh- should have that power. But in this case, I think there are people who generally should be detained, but right now shouldn't be detained. You don't really see that. And so there is an absolutely fair accusation that could be leveled that this is another kind of never- waste a crisis sort of thing. It is an interesting question, though, because if you're looking at this from the epidemiological perspective of this isn't just a concern for the people who are themselves incarcerated, but also for people who like work in those facilities who are like a lot of frontline workers, they're not necessarily being given personal protective equipment. They are not necessarily themselves being monitor monitored for symptoms they may not be getting you know super aggressive ability to take leave if they're feeling sick or if they need to take care of their family or anything like that that does militate to see for seeing this as something as like an exceptional thing where even if you would normally be be detaining people you might give it a little bit of a break but it raises the exact same concern that any other kind of social reform question does right now which is If you do this and things turn out okay, why would you ever stop? And so if you believe that it is important for consequence delivery reasons for people to be detained, there's a totally understandable reticence to kind of conceding that you should ever make an exception.
2: Yeah. All right. Uh, So I, I think we should we should wrap this up here, take a break and talk about how the three of us are all hurtling toward misery. Our white paper for you today is called Is Happiness U-Shaped Everywhere? Age and Subjective Well-Being in 132 Countries is by David Blanchflower uh, from Dartmouth. And um, this is a kind of a a demolition of of certain arguments that, that have been offered before. This is
3: a paper with like, it's got some beef. Yeah. Like there's a, there's some backstory. There is a
2: long running dispute in the literature between one empirical finding, which is that young people are happy and then people get less and less and less happy until sort of late middle age. And then they get happier and happier again in life. That's one theory, the the U-shaped theory. And then there are other skeptics of the U-shaped theory. And uh, Blanche Flower is a a leading proponent of U-shaped happiness. And he is here with all guns blazing. Uh, surveys of dozens of different countries. Um, he ha- presents evidence that the U-shaped happiness curve exists in great apes, as well as in Europe, the United States, poor countries, rich countries. It exists with statistical controls and exists without statistical controls. He is really... Loaded to tell you, right, like late 40s, middle age, you are going to be miserable, whether you're uh, in a rich country, a poor country, a man, a woman, a fucking chimpanzee. Like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, This is this is the future that you are headed for. And I don't know, you know, as sitting here at 38, I'm like, I'm getting preemptively dissatisfied with my life. Looking at the bleak 10 years I have in... in Can we talk
4: about the great apes thing, though? Because that definitely did jump out at me, at me as well. To be clear, because this is an, a volley and an ongoing dispute within the literature, there is kind of the original research portion of the paper, which is this like massive comparative look at gajillions and gajillions of countries. And then the, there's also a pretty robust. Lit review section prior to that, which is less a lit review than here are all the citations that prove that I am right. And here are some people who have recently criticized me and why they are wrong. And so the great apes thing comes up in that, in a study, a previous yeah, it's study. not study actual
2: focus. Right, of right, but the paper. It, he
4: summarizes this previous study in which researchers who were familiar with these populations of chimpanzees and orangutans rated their apparent cheerfulness and looked at that versus age and saw the same U-shaped curve. I mean, this, I kind of, I I cracked up a little bit at that. Like, that was one of those, like, my partner looked at me across the room and said, you're skeptical of something. Um, But it does get at the kind of core methodological question that comes up whenever we discuss questions of happiness, which is, Obviously, it's apples to oranges to compare does this chimpanzee look cheerful to am I an individual survey respondent saying that I am happy? But it does remind us that when we talk about happiness, we're actually using it as a proxy for am I in the context of a survey question saying that I feel good compared to what I think I could ideally be feeling? And that kind of gap between expectations and reality appears to be the driver of a lot of dissatisfaction and might reflect some of the concerns about middle age, where, you know, once you get to a certain point in your life, you may feel grateful, you may be less inclined to think about the greater fortune others may have and more inclined to think about the fact that you're still alive and wouldn't necessarily have to be. But that dynamic might be overcoming a longer run dynamic of the older you get, the more aware you get of different ways your life might have gone. And when asked by a survey researcher, think about your life in context, you know, middle age might be where you're more likely to focus on what you don't have.
3: I'm still back on the idea of cheerful great apes and how one would perci- like perceive cheer, which seems to be a concept that perhaps we invented, and maybe, just maybe, chimpanzees do not have the same concept of being cheery, which just makes me think of a bunch of chimpanzees enjoying a cup of tea and just thinking about how great life is. But yeah, it, it seems to be a, a survey question that is so experientially specific to people of how they think about this. And it seems, I mean, I understand this is a long-running disagreement in the literature, but I, I feel as if I am disagreeing with the concept of the literature in the first place. <laughs>
4: Well, but that's what makes it so interesting that this is so consistently expressed, right? And like, I definitely read this with something of a jaundiced eye toward like, you can't really compare countries with different life expectancies. And it does seem fairly robust to that, that even in countries where the life expectancy in general might be shorter, there is a demonstrated like decline where, you know, where we associate like in, in the kind of late 40s, and then and then it rises back up again. So it is surprising to me, given how culturally contingent I assume, not just culturally contingent, but like individually contingent, I assume all of this stuff is, that you do have something this robust. And so maybe there is something here that doesn't necessarily mean it's biology.
2: But I mean, it, what's interesting is actually how robust it is, because a lot of commentary that I have read on the U-shaped happiness curve, which which I think most people... Uh, who've looked at it think is real. Um, I've read some pretty good articles by Jonathan Rauch and by David Brooks about this, Um, but they both focus very much on the circumstances of American society, right? And so they say things that like kind of ring true to me as like, I don't know, like a white male writer who is somewhat younger than David Brooks and Jonathan Rauch. I would read these and be like, this is really insightful, guys. And, you know, they talk about how like you're young and you're like full of hope and promise. And then you get older, and you come to be like very frustrated by the ways in which you've fallen short of your distant aspirations in life. But then eventually, you come out on the other side, and you reach this phase of like higher enlightenment, and you see the value of community and family and friends, and and you 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 accept life, and you become uh, more comfortable with the inherent ambiguities of, of the situation. Uh, and I I've like enjoyed a lot of essays along those lines. It's not super plausible to me that that characterizes the emotional life cycle of like a subsistence farmer in Kenya. You know, it's like who feels at 47 that their career aspirations weren't really met in the way that they wanted. The, the uniformity of this makes it seem like it is something more tied to, I think, like biological rhythms rather than like Attitudes of, of life. Um, because like we know people just like change as they age um, in, in various ways. And that we also know that like most things in life, happiness-wise, people rebound from pretty well, right? So one of the other things that you know comes up in this paper is this is a handful of exceptions, right? Long-term unemployment really, really bums people out. Married people are happier than single people, but people whose marriage is bust up, are the ones who are really noticeably unhappy. That's the thing that, like, sticks with you. Um, but people recover happiness-wise from, like, really serious injuries, like, pretty well. I mean, it's painful, It's so, but but they, they bounce back. Um, people are quite robust to, like, most changes in objective life circumstances, but being in late middle age seems to, like, really bum people out for whatever reason.
4: I mean, yeah. Uh, it seems like what is needed here from our perspective isn't necessarily more extensive documentation of the U-shaped curve, but more intensive. (laughs) Um, you know, if, if the persistence is what's striking across these disparate contexts, it would be useful to, to know a little bit more about like what people in different contexts are saying about their lives and whether they're expressing the same kinds of dissatisfaction or how that gets, uh, filtered. I'm not saying that that, 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 uh, Literature isn't out there. It almost certainly is. This is almost certainly me speaking from ignorance. So people should uh, should send us some sites and we can uh, get into some more open ended survey work that might rely a little less on just demonstrating that the basic shape
2: persists. And the chimpanzee community needs to put forward some administrative data that we can we can really take it, to the Is bank. there the
3: Swedish administrative <laughs> data for the chimpanzee community? Chimps are,
2: they're falling down on the job here in terms of producing it's reliable. True. It's been a
3: long-standing <laughs> criticism in the <laughs> academic community that chimpanzees really aren't doing enough.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, fill out your census forms, all apes out there, um, you know, see, see what we can, what we can do. Um, No. (laughs) And, you know, if you, if you were there at home, uh, quarantining away, you know, stave off uh, middle-aged depression by uh, connecting with other people in the Weeds Facebook group, by emailing your hosts, uh, sharing the joy of the Weeds podcast with others. Thank our producer, Jeffrey Geld, uh, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. Hooray!